If you decided to listen to this week's message of Dr. Day Central, we know that Jesus has placed something on your heart. So let's dive in. Now, we're talking about come as you are. Somewhere along the line in church and our understanding of theology, some very good-meaning Christians started saying that we need to clean ourselves. We need to fix ourselves. We need to get ready to meet God. And the bottom line is that is not the gospel. The invitation has always been since the day that Jesus rose from the grave, come as you are, come as you are. Because the reality is we are not able to fix ourselves. We are not able to clean ourselves. We are not even able to just better ourselves. Who has ever tried to turn a new page on the 1st of January? And by the 14th of February, when we celebrate Valentine's Day, all of those good intentions has failed. I mean, I saw people around my table on Valentine's evening, eating stuff that they said on the 1st of January, they will never eat again. And I saw them indulging cook sisters and uh, having all the nice stuff. And I was looking at it as, oh, that is the proof. That is the proof. We cannot do it on our own. And the invitation is, the love invitation of God is, man, come as you are. Don't pretend, don't, don't dress up for church. Don't try to look better when you come here. Come as you are, because he can see you in the worst of your circumstances. He has seen you, as a matter of fact, as Tumi just said, even before you had the worst of your circumstances, before you had your first breath, he saw you and he loved you. And he had the best of intentions for you. And therefore he's saying, come, come as you are, and I will do life with you. I will make life happen in you. And in this series, we are, we are just looking at those moments in the gospel of John. John, this disciple of Jesus, you're going to see it today. I love John. He's this, the disciple that calls himself, not John, but he calls himself the one the Lord loves. <laughs> It's kind of arrogant, but it's beautiful. I mean, it's a, it's a revelation. If you can start talking about yourself, not as to me, but as the one that Lord, the Lord loves. And this, this disciple kind of emphasizes these different invitations as, as Jesus says, come. Firstly, just come. Come to me. And then he says, come and see what we spoke about last week. And today, very interesting, we're going to discover what it means as he says, come and dine with me. Come and eat with me. And next week, we will, we will discover what it means when he says, come and drink. These are the four invitations out of the book of John. So there's a beautiful story in John chapter 21. I'm not going to read the whole story. You can go read it. it is, it's a beautiful story from verse 3 to 13. But what, basically, it starts with this, this little sentence as John writes about Peter. Now, there was kind of a rivalry between these two brothers right along the whole journey. Um, they were very different. So now, it is, it is John writing about Peter. So he's kind of throwing a bit of shadow on this brother of him because he's, he's saying, you know, he starts the story with, Peter saying, 
I'm going fishing. So that's not bad. I mean, it's not a sin going fishing. But if you understand the context of what's happening here, so what happened is Jesus died and Peter was kind of the guy that denied him just before his death. So Peter did not get an opportunity to reconnect with Jesus. He was standing there denying Jesus. And the next moment, Jesus died on the cross. And uh, now there's the rumor of Jesus that has risen from the dead. And this guy is just so confused. Peter is so fed up with all this Jesus stuff and everything. He's, he's just saying, I'm going back fishing. I'm giving up. I'm going to go do what I've been doing all my life, and I'm satisfied with that. I am fed up. And then he goes fishing. And him, and because he's a leader, he takes a lot of the disciples with him. So now they, they fishermen again. So they gave up on Christianity. And they're busy trying to catch fish. And then it's a terrible night. And I suppose most fishermen will kind of understand this. I, I myself don't really do the fishing thing, but I've, I've seen it that you try to catch fish and you don't get to catch anything. Uh, I mean, for my advice would be, do you know where's the closest pick and pay? Like, it's much easier kind of catching a fish there in the freezer. You know, it's already prepared. You don't have to cut off the head and get the guts out. It's just easier. But they, they did not know about pick and pay yet. So they were trying to get fish. And they, they, they were working hard the whole night, no catch, nothing. And then the next moment, there's a guy standing on the shore calling out to them, saying, hi, children, do you have food? And they are very discouraged. They say, no, we don't have anything. And they don't know who it is, but this guy calls out to them and says, take the nets and throw it out on the other side. Now, I can just hear the murmuring of the disciples inside the boat. Who's this guy? Like, we are professional fishermen. I mean, we've even given up on Christianity and Jesus and everything. We're back. We understand catching fish. But fortunately, they listen and then they throw out the nets and suddenly there's this miraculous just catch 158 fish, I think, like in this net, this thing bursting and, and when that happens, they realize, well, something must be going on here. And then it's beautiful as, as uh, John says, verse 7, he says, The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter. <laughs> Just saying, John said to Peter, it's the Lord. That man is Jesus. It's Jesus standing on the shore and saying, do it on the other side. And this Peter, like previously, gets out of the boat. Immediately. The previous time, you'll remember the story, he almost drowned, but this time it's close to the shore. So he gets out, and the Bible says he starts pulling in the net. So he's now, I mean, he's like operational. Jesus is there. He, he, he wants to get to Jesus because he needs to sort out an issue with Jesus. And then he gets out, and as he approaches Jesus, you can just see him being eaten up by guilt, feeling, I, I probably now, I'm going to get the biggest hiding of my life. Jesus is going to sort me out now. We have not yet had a discussion since that terrible moment that I said, no, I don't know him for three times. And then the most crazy thing happens. You go read that portion. Jesus says, bring some of the fish. He's not, doesn't have a whip. 
He's not angry. He's not shouting. He is not ready with a sermon and explaining guilt and how you should feel and how you should repent. What Jesus says is just the following. Come eat with me. Come dine with me. It's like crazy. It's like, Jesus, don't you understand? This guy really messed up. This is supposed to be a moment of reckoning. This is supposed to be a moment. You are planning on using this guy in future. If you don't fix him now, he's going to mess up the church. That's kind of the implication. And Jesus says, there's a table. Come sit and eat with me. It's actually confusing as you read this. Why would Jesus do that? And then some of the translations actually says it's uh, in more detail. It says, come have breakfast with me. Have you, have you seen in scripture how many times there's something about meals or food or people eating together in the Bible? It's like a big thing. It's no wonder the Christians struggle with their weight. I mean, it's all about eating. When we have communion, it's about eating. If you, if you read the Old Testament as the guys were sitting in Exodus, moving out of, the, out of slavery, what was happening? It was God just showed up and killed all the firstborn of Egypt. And then he says, it's time for a meal. Let's order McDonald's. When they get in the, when they, when, when, whenever something significant happens, there's a moment of eating. And it's almost as if we confronted with the re, this reality, as, as, as we see the life of Jesus. I mean, it is Jesus eating with sinners. It's Jesus eating with his disciples. It's Jesus breaking bread. It's Jesus feeding thousands of people. It's all about bread. He's saying, I'm the bread of life. Here, take it, eat me. Because you see the reality in terms of Jesus' invitation in come and dine with me is not just to come and sit and eat with me. It is the old promise in poetic language of the Old Testament of God not saying come and sit just and eat with me, but eat of me. Now, the moment I say that, I realize it's everybody saying, oh, yeah, you know, this Christianity is really crazy. Now we're talking about eating God. Isn't that like, Donnie, a bit, you know, crazy? That's like explaining communion to my unsaved friends. What do you do? No, that's the night when Jesus said, this is the bread. Eat this. It is my flesh. Yee. I mean, what is this Christianity all about? But if we dive back into the Old Testament and we just try to discover what this invitation was, we discover the most amazing reality because this is not just an invitation to come sit at a table. This is an invitation to something much bigger than just sitting at a table. The book of Psalms helps us to understand something as Psalm 34 Beautiful verse, beautiful, says the following. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. So this, this is not just eating with. It is feasting on. 
It is eating of God. And what does that mean? When, when the psalmist writes and he says, taste God, what on earth does that mean? How do I taste God? And I quickly want to run through just a few realities when we talk about tasting God and eating of God and experiencing God in this way. You see, the first thing is, it is all about a word that we call unity. You know, if you taste something, if you take something, if you take that cook sister or you take that, that uh, piece of braai flace, I mean, who, who loves, who loves braaiing? Just to quickly see. Uh, you, you were supposed to say something at the beginning. Uh, lasagna? Melkdert. You know, when you take that food, to taste it, what do you need to do? You have to, like, open your mouth, and you need to put it inside you. There's something in eating that describes union, joining together, bringing together in actually a very intimate way. When, when the psalmist says, he uses the word taste, he says, taste God. It means putting him inside you. It means experiencing, experiencing him in a very, in, the, the, the concept of eating basically means transitioning from the outside of knowing about God to transitioning into a relationship with him. Tasting God, eating of God basically means having an intimate relationship with him, having a joint union with him. Jesus prays the following, John 17 verse 20. He says, I pray not only for these disciples standing around him, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe. There's something of a union in the reality of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is not the fact that we just get to get saved to skip hell and go to heaven. The good news of the gospel is the fact that the, the triune God made an invitation to mankind to join the holy family of God himself. Me and him and I. In you and we all together experiencing the unity. That is the invitation. It's about oneness. It's about intimate relationship. But it's not just about that. It's also about a covenant. Now, many times when we talk in church about covenant, it sounds like a very biblical word. A covenant is basically an agreement. It's just we see together, we see the same way. And, and the interesting thing is that whenever in the Bible there's a covenant, there's an agreement between God and man or between man and man, there were meals. Even today, we still have meals after covenants. Who's been to a wedding recently? That's what we do. We get together, they say, I do. And if they say, I do, we all reveal why we came for the I do. 
We did not come for the I do. We came for the we eat. And then we go and we sit and eat. That's the reality. I mean, even businessmen, they get together. They talk about a big deal. They sign the contract. And then they say, what do we do now? Let's go to the spur. Now we go and we eat. It is something... When, when, when the psalmist writes and he says, understand something of the picture of God's invitation to his disciples, to you and me, come and dine. The implication is that we will sit across the table and look each other in the eye and say, we have a mutual agreement of where we are. This is the terms in which we will relate to one another. This is the promises that you have brought. This is the implication of what I'm bringing to the table. We have a shared agreement. The invitation of eating is a covenant invitation. Come and taste. Come and experience. You know, in many cultures, eating together is much more about the agreement than about the stomach. If you ever been in a situation where someone will say, come eat with me? And if you say, ah, no, I'm not really hungry now, thank you very much, you can see the disappointment in their eyes and they almost say, this is a bit like a declaration of war. Don't you want to eat with me? What's wrong? Is there something wrong with my food? Is there something wrong with my home? Do you not trust me? Because eating together is more about the agreement than about the food. It is a covenant moment. It is a moment of union and agreement. It is God saying, it is Jesus saying to Peter, you, Peter, stuck in your guilt, come sit at my table and eat of me so that you can again be remembering about the agreement that I have with you on the cross. You know that evening when Jesus broke the bread, when Peter was the one that was so, he was a wise ass that evening, saying that others will reject you, but I will never. In that same moment, while sitting around the table, while celebrating the agreement of the new promise, of the new covenant, of the end of an era of performance, Peter was the one that was trusting on himself. And now as Jesus sees him again, he says, Peter, come and sit at this table because I want to remind you about the fact that it was my body that is broken, that it is my blood that will cleanse you. I'm entering into a new agreement with humanity. I want you to be reminded about that. It's not just a meal. It's a covenant. But it's more than that. It's a union. It's a covenant. But guys, it's also, it's also the experience of more than an idea. You know, for many people, God is just an idea. It's just a theory. You know, sometimes I read books and I love reading. And then within the first two pages, I will decide whether I'm going to finish this book. And there's unfortunately many books that I don't finish. Because if I ever read a book on any Christian ideas, and within the first two pages, I realize that this guy is talking about God in terms of a theory and not in terms of a personal experience. 
I don't read the book because I'm not interested in his philosophy. We enter into an experiential experiencing the real reality of God when we eat of him. You know, it's like a menu. You can take a menu. We can take the whatever menu you like, whatever restaurant you like. If you like the spur, I mean, we can, we can distribute this, the menu of the spur here this morning. And we can start reminiscing about the beauty of that food. And we can talk about the nachos. And we can talk about the ribs. And we can get all excited about the steaks. And some guys will, will even get excited about the pizza. And we can get ourselves up in a frenzy. And we can even like have unerflace. We can, we can feel it. We can, we can have like an excitement in our body because of the menu. But the moment you go put your bum on a seat at the spur. And that waiter carries out that. And I'm, I'm, I know we're not far from lunch. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> And someone carries out those ribs, those succulent, saucy ribs that you grab with your hand and you, you taste the sweetness of the barbecue sauce and you feel how it, how it enters into your system. I promise you, next time someone gets excited about the menu, you will say, you don't know what you're talking about because I ate the ribs. They are part of me. And the problem is that Christianity can be a menu Christianity. It can be all about the theory, all about the theology, all about the understanding, all about the idea of God and what the invitation of come and dine is to come and get past the menu and get to the meal to experience the realness of God. Because he's not a theory. It's not an idea. He's a person. He's a person, and that person loves you and is reaching out to you and is inviting you into a space to say, Come and taste me. Experience who I am. But it's even more than that. I love the way that, that, that the psalmist writes the, this psalm, Psalm 34. He starts with a word. It's kind of, it's, it's, uh, I'm going to ask you actually to say it with me. He, he doesn't say, taste and see that the Lord is good. What does the verse say? It says, oh. <laughs> Quickly look to the guy next to you, preferably if it's your spouse, and say, oh. Oh, you see the eyebrow, eyebrows need to work with the O. It is, oh. It's a crazy word in the Bible. If you go look at that word in, in the Hebrew, it's actually a word that, that, that's a little misplaced in terms of the psalm because this is a very emotional word. It's a very sensual word. It even has a little bit of an intimate connection. Oh. <laughs> you guys, you understand that, eh? Oh. He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord, oh, it's a passion 
It's an invitation into a passionate relationship. I don't know who ever taught Christians that you should leave your mind outside the church, but I also do not know who taught Christians that you should leave the rest of your body outside the church. Why are we so afraid to bring these two together that we can have a real experience with God in understanding the good news of the gospel, but also have an experience in our whole body expressing the fact that we sense God, we taste God. Some people only worship with their minds because they have an understanding of the gospel, but we need to worship with our whole body because it is our own experience. It's not just a mind thing. It's not just an idea thing. It is a passionate experience of the one that loves you. And we are so afraid of mixing this up. Why? The psalmist says, that's the way that we experience God. I mean, if you eat that beautiful rib, if you eat that lasagna, if you eat that, 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 that piece of KFC, even though it's going to give you a heart attack, I mean, you experience it with everything in your body. It is not just a part of you that experiences the KFC. It's not just your tongue. It is everything in you. When you bite into that succulent meat and you taste the 11 herbs and spices, you feel it in everything. Everything tingles. It's, ah, I want more. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, come and dine. Come and eat. Come and experience. The bottom line of this invitation is, it's actually about a new state of being. It's not just an experience. It's not just a covenant. It's not just the union. You see, somewhere along the line, someone said to us as Christians, it is all about Jesus dying and forgiving our sins. And that's kind of the good news of the gospel. Our sins are forgiven and now we go to heaven. But this is not taste and see. Sins forgiven is amazing and it's great and it's awesome and it's very important. But that is not the end destination of the gospel. The gospel has a bigger story. The biggest story is one of union with Christ. It is being in Him and experiencing that He is in me. It is not about the destination of heaven. It is about heaven entering into me and me entering into heaven and living in this new state of being. We have made Adam the central point of our understanding of the gospel. If it's all about sin, Adam is the center of the gospel. And Jesus is the plumber that arrives on the scene to fix the broken pipe. When we put Jesus in the middle of the gospel, and we put Adam and his sin on the sideline, then Jesus is not the plumber, he's the hero. He's the center point. He's the one that loves us. He's the one that we have union with. He's the one of whom we enjoy everything, of whom we experience life. It is about the union. When Paul uses the words and he says, you guys need to understand the mystery of the gospel, and this is the mystery. I am in Christ. 
That is the hope. That is the hope. I am in Christ and he is in me. You, when you have put your faith in Christ, you are wall to wall filled with the presence and the fullness of God. That is the bottom line of the gospel. Paul writes this, Ephesians 1 verse 3 to 6. He says, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavens in Christ. You still think you're cursed. You're worried about blood curses. You are worried about the curses of your family. I want to promise you there's a new state of being on which the God of heaven said because of our union, you are now blessed in the same way that I am blessed. Get over the curses. Get over the nonsense of this world. You live in a new state of being, namely in Christ. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Christ Jesus for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. That's a new state of being. That is the invitation. That's the invitation, not the forgiveness of sins, not going to heaven. It is Christ himself. So what happens when I taste God? The psalmist says, he says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The goodness of God, if you forget anything I, everything I say today, remember this. The goodness of God is the foundation of your relationship with Him. If you do not understand in the essence of your being, in the core of who you are, that God is good, you are not yet in relationship with Him. That goodness test will come every day. If pain arrives, if discomfort arrives, it will always bring the question, is God good? And if I have tasted him, I will always come to the same conclusion. Yes, he is good. I will never go down the route of saying that he is the author of my pain. He is seeking my destruction. He's the, he's the lighting in my suffering. When pain comes, I will resort back to the place and say, I have tasted, I have seen that the Lord is good. His goodness is everything in my life. I expect nothing else from him than being good. God is good to the essence of his being. There's nothing in him that is not good. And if anything happens to me that is not good, it is not God. But God will be present with his goodness in every pain, in every suffering, in every temptation. That's the picture of the gospel. Jesus comes, the perfect holy one, into our broken world. 
That's the beauty of our gospel. It is not a cheap shot of God saying, I will fix the world from the outside. I will take away all the pain and I will create for you an airy fairy wonderland where you can live without pain and everything will just be nice and, and cozy and you don't have to worry about anything again. No, it is a God saying that I will enter into your world and I will carry your pain. I will be the bearer of your pain. Why did the cross ask so much blood? It was God saying, I am taking your pain on on me. That incarnation is the goodness of God that says in your pain and suffering, I am bringing my goodness. If you do not, do not taste his goodness, you have not yet tasted him. When challenges come, it's all about the fact that God is good. You know, God's goodness and His glory is the same thing. Did you know that? Do you know that God's glory, our name, Doxadeo, is actually not just the glory of God, it's the goodness of God? That's the essence of our relationship with Him. As Moses asked God, can I see you? Exodus chapter 33, the Bible explains beautifully. It says, and He said, please show me your glory. Show me your hugeness. Show me your, 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 your amazing godliness. And listen to what he says. And then the Lord said, I will make my goodness pass before you. What is the glory of God? It's his goodness. As Moses stands there and God ex literally displays his goodness. Chapter 34 verse 6 says, And the Lord, the God, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and in truth passed before him. God is good. And if you do not believe that, you are busy with the theory. You are not eating of his table. And Peter, Peter was worried about the goodness of God. That's why he was guilty. That why, that's why he was running. That's why he was hurting. He did not understand the goodness of God. And in that moment, as he approaches Jesus, Jesus says, come and dine. Come and taste my goodness. Because that will change your life. Let's pray together. I want to just for a moment create a space that you can this morning taste and see that the Lord is good. I know many of you sitting here are going through challenges. Maybe it's personal. Maybe you're struggling financially or with your health, with relationships, with family. Maybe you feel hurt, whether it be relationships or church or whatever. Maybe you feel offended. You're carrying anger in your heart. Life is happening. And maybe you are running. You're running away, not running closer. Like Peter, 
going back, going back to fishing, going back to distance and guilt and shame and pain and hurt and offense and struggle and worry. As Jesus makes the invitation, he says, come and dine, come and taste that God is good. I think some of us need a restoration of the goodness of God in our lives. We need a restoration. Not of the idea, because ideas can be challenged. We need a restoration of the reality, of the experience of God's goodness. Where's the bad things in life happening to you now? You can name them. I'm struggling. I'm ill. I have no finances. My children, my marriage, my family. You can name them. God has one answer. I am good. I am good. Taste that. This Peter goes and he sits next to Jesus after breakfast. Jesus is not preaching. Jesus is not fighting. He says, Peter, do you love me? And three times he asks the question because three times. Peter denied him. And three times he takes Peter back to love. Not to guilt, not to pain, not to suffering. He takes him back to love. He takes him back to his goodness. If you're a candidate for a restoration of God's goodness in your life, don't you maybe quickly want to stand this morning and just say, Lord, I need a new revelation of your goodness in my life. Whatever the circumstances might be, I just want to pray for you this morning. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. Don't you just want to stand there and just say, Lord, I trust you. Restore your goodness in me. As I'm overwhelmed by so many things, Restore your goodness in me. God is good all the time and all the time. God is good. Every moment of your life is good. In the worst of your circumstances, he's good. In the best of your successes, he's good. He's good. Last chance, if you quickly want to stand, I want to pray for you.
Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you're the one that introduces us to the goodness of our Father. You are the undiluted reality of God with us. And I want to ask you, Holy Spirit, to fill our hearts with a conviction deeper than anything else about your goodness, about your light, as we taste you. Lord, restore this morning. Restore goodness. Restore your goodness in each one of these people standing. If you're standing this morning, I just sense God saying, I will overwhelm you with my goodness. You will not be able to explain to other people how my goodness changed your life. Are you ready to receive the goodness of God? Lord, thank you. Thank you that that revelation today will change the lives and the circumstances of people. Thank you that you are good. Central Campus, I want to ask you, will you please stand with me? I try to explain in the beginning my limited capacity about all the changes happening in Doxodeo, Bloemfontein at the moment, and in this campus, it's going to greatly affect our lives. Can we this morning just proclaim God's goodness over us as a community? Can we make that our primary reference? Not a leader, not a venue. Not my safety, not what I think or my opinion. Can we make our primary reference the goodness of God as we proclaim his goodness over this church? Are you willing to do it with me? Just there where you're standing. Will you say with me, God, you are good. God, you're good over, over this campus. You are good over our lives. You are good over our future. You are good over every circumstance in our lives. You are our primary reference, and your goodness is what we expect. Lord, let that be the future of this church, built on who you are. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What a message. If you feel that someone would benefit from this, share it with them. We are all about family on mission.